Chapter One, Mind Over Motor, of Tish, the Chronicle of Her Excursions and Escapades. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra. Tish, the Chronicle of Her Excursions and Escapades by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter One. Mind over motor. How Tish broke the law and some records. One. So many unkind things have been said of the affair at Morris Valley that I think it best to publish a straightforward account of everything. The ill nature of the cartoon, for instance, which showed Tish in a pair of khaki trousers on her back under a racing car was quite uncalled for. Tish did not wear the khaki trousers. She merely took them along in case of emergency. Nor was it true that Tish took Aggie along as a mechanician and brutally pushed her off the car because she was not pumping enough oil. The fact was that Aggie sneezed on a curve and fell out of the car and would no doubt have been killed had she not been thrown into a pile of sand. It was in early September that Eliza Bailey, my cousin, decided to go to London, ostensibly for a rest, but really to get some creton at liberties. Eliza wrote me at Lake Penzance, asking me to go to Morris Valley and look after Bettina. I must confess that I was eager to do it. We three were very comfortable at Matt Cottage, Matt being the name Charlie Sands, Tish's nephew had given it, being the initials of middle-aged trio. Not that I regard the late forties as middle-aged, but Tish, of course, is fifty. Charlie Sands, who is on a newspaper, calls us either the Matt or the B.A.'s for beloved aunts, although Aggie and I are not related to him. Bettina's mother's note. Not that she will allow you to do it, or because she isn't entirely able to take care of herself, but because the people here are a talky lot. Bettina will probably look after you. She has come from college with a feeling that I am old and decrepit and must be cared for. She maddens me with pillows and cups of tea and woolen shawls. She thinks Morris Valley selfish and idle, and is disappointed in the church, preferring her Presbyterianism pure. She is desirous now of learning how to cook. If you decide to come, I'll be grateful if you can keep her out of the kitchen. Devotedly, Eliza. P.S. If you can keep Bettina from getting married while I'm away, I'll be very glad. She believes a woman should marry and rear a large family. E. We were sitting on the porch of the cottage at Lake Penzance when I received the letter, and I read it aloud. Humph, said Tish putting down the stocking she was knitting and looking over her spectacles at me. Likes her Presbyterianism pure and believes in a large family. How old is she, forty? Eighteen or twenty, I replied, looking at the letter. I'm not anxious to go. She'll probably find me frivolous. Tish put on her spectacles and took the letter. I think it's your duty, Lizzie, she said when she'd read it through. But that young woman needs handling. We'd better all go. We can motor over in half a day. That was how it happened that Bettina Bailey, 
sitting on Eliza Bailey's front piazza, decked out in chintz cushions, the piazza, of course, saw a dusty machine come up the drive and stop with a flourish at the steps, and from it a light, not one chaperone, but three. After her first gasp, Bettina was game. She was a pretty girl in a white dress, and bore no traces in her face of any stern religious proclivities. I didn't know, she said, staring from one to the other of us. Mother said, that is, won't you go right upstairs and have some tea and lie down? She had hardly taken her eyes from Tish, who had lifted the engine hood and was poking at the carburetor with a hairpin. No, thanks, said Tish briskly. I'll just go around to the garage and oil up while I'm dirty. I've got a short circuit somewhere. Aggie, you and Lizzie get the trunk off. Bettina stood by while we unbuckled and lifted down our travelling trunk. She did not speak a word, beyond asking if we wouldn't wait until the gardener came. On Tish's saying, she had no time to wait, because she wanted to put kerosene in the cylinders before the engine cooled. Bettina lapsed into silence and stood by, watching us. Bettina took us upstairs. She had put Drummond's natural law in the spiritual world on my table, and a couch was ready with pillows and a knitted slumber robe. Very gently she helped us out of our veils and dusters and closed the windows for fear of draughts. Dear mother is so reckless of draughts, she remarked. Are you sure you won't have tea? We had some blackberry cordial with us, Aggie said, and we all had a little on the way. We had to change a tire and it made us thirsty. Change a tire? Aggie had taken off her bonnet and was pinning on the small lace cap she wears away from home to hide where her hair is growing thin. In her cap, Aggie is a sweet-faced woman of almost fifty, rather ethereal. She pinned on her cap and pulled her crimps down over her forehead. Yes, she observed, a bridge went down with us and one of the nails spoiled a new tire. I told Miss Carberry the bridge was unsafe but she thought by taking it very fast. Bettina went over to Aggie and clutched her arm. Do you mean to say, she quavered, that you three women went through a bridge? It was a small bridge, I put in to relieve her mind, and only a foot or two of water below, if only the man had not been so disagreeable. Oh, she said relieved, you had a man with you. We never take a man with us, Aggie said with dignity. This one was fishing under the bridge, and he was most ungentlemanly, quite refused to help, and tried to get the license number so he could sue us. Sue you? He claimed his arm was broken, but I distinctly saw him move it. Aggie, having adjusted her cap, was looking at it in the mirror. But dear Tish thinks of everything. She had taken off the license plates. Bettina had gone really pale. She seemed at a loss and impatient at herself for being so. You, you won't have tea? she asked. No, thank you. Would you, perhaps you would prefer whiskey and soda? Aggie turned on her a reproachful eye. My dear girl, she said, with the exception of a little homemade wine used medicinally, we drink nothing. 
I am the secretary of the Women's Prohibition Party. Bettina left us shortly after that to arrange for putting up Letitia and Aggie. She gave them her mother's room, and whatever impulse she may have had to put the Presbyterian Psalter by the bed, she restrained it. By midnight, Drummond's natural law had disappeared from my table, and a novel had taken its place. But Bettina had not lost her air of bewilderment. That first evening was very quiet. A young man in white flannels called, and he and Letitia spent a delightful evening on the porch, talking spark-plugs and carburettors. Bettina sat in a corner and looked at the moon. Spoken to, she replied in monosyllables in a carefully sweet tone. The young man's name was Jasper McCutcheon. It developed that Jasper owned an old racing car, which he kept in the Bailey garage, and he and Tish went out to look it over. They very politely asked us all to go along, but Bettina refusing, Aggie and I sat with her and looked at the moon. Aggie, in her capacity as chaperone, or as one of an association of chaperones, used the opportunity to examine Bettina on the subject of Jasper. He seems a nice boy, she remarked. Aggie's idea of a nice boy is one who in summer wears fresh flannels outside, in winter less conspicuously. Does he live near? Next door, sweetly but coolly. He is very good-looking. Ears spoil him, too large. Does he come around, uh, often? Only two or three times a day. On Sunday, of course, we see more of him. Aggie looked at me in the moonlight. Clearly the young man from the next door needed watching. It was well we had come. I suppose you like the same things, she suggested, similar tastes and, um, all that. Bettina stretched her arms over her head and yawned. Not so you could notice it, she said coolly. I can't think of anything we agree on. He is an Episcopalian. I'm a Presbyterian. He approves of suffrage for women. I do not. He is a Republican. I'm a progressive. He disapproves of large families. I approve of them, if people can afford them. Aggie sat straight up. I hope you don't discuss that, she exclaimed. Bettina smiled. How nice to find that you are really just nice elderly ladies after all, she said. Of course we discuss it. Is it anything to be ashamed of? When I was a girl, I said tartly, we married first and discussed those things afterward. Of course you did, Aunt Lizzie, she said, smiling alluringly. She was the prettiest girl I think I have ever seen, and that night she was beautiful. And you raised enormous families who religiously walked to church in their bare feet to save their shoes. I did nothing of the sort, I snapped. It seemed to me, Aggie put in gently, that you make very little of love. Aggie was once engaged to be married to a young man named Wiggins, a roofer by trade, who was killed in the act of inspecting a tin gutter on a rainy day. He slipped and fell over, breaking his neck as a result. Bettina smiled at Aggie. Not at all, she said. The day of blind love is gone, that's all. 
gone like the day of the chaperone. Neither of us cared to pursue this, and Tish at that moment appearing with Jasper, Aggie and I made a move toward bed. But Jasper, not going, and none of us caring to leave him alone with Bettina, we sat down again. We sat until one o'clock. At the end of that time, Jasper rose, and saying something about its being almost bedtime, strolled off next door. Aggie was sound asleep in her chair, and Tish was dozing. As for Bettina, she had said hardly a word after eleven o'clock. Aggie and Tish, as I have said, were occupying the same room. I went to sleep the moment I got into bed, and must have slept three or four hours when I was awakened by a shot. A moment later a dozen or more shots were fired in rapid succession, and I sat bolt upright in bed. Across the street someone was raising a window, and a man called, "'What's the matter?' twice." There was no response and no further sound. Shaking in every limb, I found the light switch and looked at the time. It was four o'clock in the morning and quite dark. Someone was moving in the hall outside and whimpering. I opened the door hurriedly and Aggie half fell into the room. Tish is murdered, Lizzie, she said, and collapsed on the floor in a heap. Nonsense! She's not in her room or in the house, and I heard shots. Well, Aggie was right. Tish was not in her room. There was a sort of horrible stillness everywhere, as we stood there clutching at each other and listening. She's heard burglars downstairs and has gone down after them, and this is what has happened. Oh, Tish, brave Tish, Aggie cried hysterically. And at that Bettina came in with her hair over her shoulders, and asked us if we had heard anything. When we told her about Tish, she insisted on going downstairs, and with Aggie carrying her first aid box, and I carrying the blackberry cordial, we went down. The lower floor was quiet and empty. The man across the street had put down his window and gone back to bed, and everything was still. Bettina, in her dressing gown, went out on the porch and turned on the light. Tish was not there, nor was there a body lying on the lawn. It was back of the house by the garage, Bettina said, if only Jasper. And at that moment Jasper came into the circle of light. He had a Norfolk coat on over his pyjamas and a pair of slippers, and he was running, calling over his shoulder to someone behind as he ran. Watch the drive, he yelled. I saw him duck round the corner. We could hear other footsteps now and somebody panting near us. Aggie was sitting huddled in a porch chair crying, and Bettina, in the hall, was trying to get down from a wall a Moorish knife that Eliza Bailey had picked up somewhere. John, we heard Jasper calling. John, quick, I've got him. He was just at the corner of the porch. My heart stopped and then rushed on a thousand a minute, then... Take your hands off me, said Tish's voice. The next moment Tish came majestically into the circle of light and mounted the steps. Jasper, with his mouth open, stood below looking up, and a hired man in what looked like a bed quilt was behind in the shadow. Tish was completely dressed in her motoring clothes, even to her goggles, 
She looked neither to the right nor left, but stalked across the porch into the house and up the stairway. None of us moved until we heard the door of her room slam above. Poor old dear, said Bettina. She's been walking in her sleep. But the shots, gasped Aggie. Someone was shooting at her. Conscious now of his costume, Jasper had edged close to the veranda and stood in its shadow. Walking in her sleep, of course, he said heartily. The trip today was too much for her. But think of her getting into that burglar-proof garage with her eyes shut. Or do sleepwalkers have their eyes shut? And actually cranking up my racer. Aggie looked at me, and I looked at Aggie. Of course, Jasper went on. There being no muffler on it, the racket wakened her as well as the neighbourhood, and then the way we chased her. Poor old dear, said Bettina again. I'm going in to make her some tea. I think, said Jasper, that I need a bit of tea too. If you will put out the porch lights, I'll come up and have some. But Aggie and I said nothing. We knew Tish never walked in her sleep. She had meant to try out Jasper's racing car at dawn, forgetting that racers have no mufflers, and that she had been, as one may say, hoist with her own petard, although I do not know what a petard is, and have never been able to find out. We drank our tea, but Tish refused to have any, or to reply to our knocks, preserving a sulky silence. Also, she had locked Aggie out, and I was compelled to let her sleep in my room. I was almost asleep when Aggie spoke. Did you think there was anything queer about the way that Jasper boy said goodnight to Bettina? She asked drowsily. I didn't hear him say goodnight. That was it. He didn't. I think... Oh, she yawned. I think he kissed her. End of section one.